ask just your grace tonight as we open the scripture together that you would speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Judges chapter 10. Judges chapter 10, continuing our study. Now you'll remember we're in the book of Judges, which is that continual cycle of backsliding by the nation of Israel. The Lord then allows their enemies to oppress them. Then they cry out to the Lord. The Lord raises up deliverance by a judge and gives them time of peace. And then, of course, over time they begin to backslide again and the cycle repeats. We just recently studied through the life of Gideon. Following Gideon there in chapter 9, we we saw something of kind of a sample of the times. Uh, It wasn't necessarily a story of one of the judges, but rather Abimelech. You remember his his drama and how he kind of rose to power and his life ended. And what chapter 9 really was, just to kind of give us a little cross-section of just how dark things were in the nation at that time. You get to see this, uh, you know, Abimelech rising up, killing his own brothers. And then, of course, going to war with his own people, killing and burning people alive. And then himself killed by a woman who drops a stone from the tower. And and really, just kind of a dark time, a very... uh, A time when the nation had fallen away from the Lord. And as you fall and move away from the Lord, all of these kinds of things and circumstances just begin to dominate uh, the time and the the society and the culture. And uh, it's true today as well. As As a nation or a people move away from the Lord, away from the Lord's word, away from the things that he has given to us as an anchor and foundation, all kinds of trouble and circumstance begin to rise up in, in our lives and in the nation. So this is the history of, of the time of the judges. We pick it up here tonight in chapter 10 and uh, continuing through these patterns that the Lord uh, has, has get left for us in the book of Judges. Pick it up with me now in verse 1. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua. The son of Dodo. What a family name, huh? Tola, Pua, and Dodo. Uh, A man of Issachar. And he dwelt in Shemir in the mountains of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. And he died and was buried in Shemir. After him arose Jair, a Gileadite. And he judged Israel 22 years. Now he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. They also had 30 towns, which he called Havoth-Jair to this day, which are called, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Camon. So we have Tola and Jair. Not much written about them, just a few verses here, but quite a bit of history. Tola judged for 23 years and Jair for 22 years. So this is a long stretch of peace and rest in the land and these men are mentioned in the book of judges again not much written about their time but clearly they were good judges because the nation seemed to enjoy uh, quite a bit of blessing and years of blessing under their lives Um, tola was uh, a man of issachar lived and buried up in the mountains of ephraim jair he he must have had uh, some type of wealth and maybe was something of a of a noble person within the nation of israel he had 30 sons all with donkeys that's like you know sons with sports cars i guess in that day Uh, they were all well you know they were all traveling well and maybe even these towns were each each one for his own son i'm not sure but 30 towns you can just see them, right, cruising through town on their donkey. Hey, slow down. No, no sorry. All right, moving on. Uh, verse 6. So these, these short uh, mention of these, these judges, but a great length of time in the nation enjoying rest. But verse 6. Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals and the Ashtaroths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. It seemed that they were willing to serve any god but the true and living God. Verse 7, So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. And from that year they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. 
and all the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. Moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah also, against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. So again, they begin to fall away from the Lord. They enjoyed uh, great years of rest, but as soon as the leaders, as soon as those judges, those men that seemed to be kind of keeping them accountable in their walk and, and worship of the Lord, once they passed, the people's hearts began to stray. It could be that they were just getting so comfortable and relaxed that they didn't realize it was actually the Lord who was providing the blessings that they enjoyed. That can happen. You know, you, you, you enjoy the blessing of God's hand and God's mercy upon your life. And it becomes so prominent, so normal that you forget that it's really the mercy and the grace of God. You begin to just think, well, this is just my life. I'm just blessed. I'm just fortunate. And it may be that you are, but don't forget who it is that blesses and who it is that sustains you. It's the Lord. And as you begin to drift away from the Lord, um, the Lord begin, you get out from under that covering of the Lord, that protection of the Lord. Maybe they, came, maybe they became bored with the Lord, just kind of routine. They became restless. They wanted to be like the pagan people around them. It seemed they were having so much more fun and, and maybe uh, certain things that enticed them. And so they fell away. And it kindled the Lord's anger. It says it was hot against them. The Lord was quite upset with the people. And he now raises up their enemies again. And now they suffer under 18 years of oppression. A long time to be under now this oppression. It says the oppression of the Ammonites raised up in Gilead. Now Gilead was that portion of Israel that was on the east side of the Jordan River. You remember when Moses had the, had the nation camped there, getting ready to cross the Jordan to go into the promised land, that two and a half tribes came and said to Moses, look, we like it on this side. We've got cattle. The land is good here for grazing. Why don't we just stay here? And Moses worked out that deal with them. Fine, you can stay here, but you've got to go over with your brothers when they go into the main promised land and help them fight and win the land. Then when the land is settled, you can come back and enjoy this side. So that's Gilead. That's the side where the trouble is now rising up. And uh, But not only there, the scripture tells us that they also crossed over the Jordan and began to trouble the people on the west side of the Jordan, in the promised land proper, if you will. So this, this, this trouble is growing, this trouble is spreading, and as it says here, the, the, the nation of Israel is severely distressed. It's quite quite a hardship upon them, and now after 18 years... Of course, they begin to cry out to the Lord. Pick it up now in verse 10. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines? Also the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will, not deliver, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you, only deliver us this day, we pray. And so they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. God is losing patience with this people as they continue to cycle through and come back to him with the same problems and the same crying out and the Lord knows their heart he knows that there's a lack of sincerity that there's a lack of steadfastness in their willingness to serve him and so he really begins to challenge them and say look you have chosen these other gods you've lived you've know, been living there you know uh, serving them these 18 years why don't you cry out to them you're so determined to have it this way why don't you now go and live it you know almost as if the Lord getting ready to turn them over to their own choices. And that's, that's probably one of the worst 
things that can happen to any of us. One of the most harshest disciplines is that the Lord would allow us to actually come under the full experience of our own way. Boy, I pray the Lord, Lord, don't let me come under the full weight of what I truly deserve. Lord, I need your mercy. I need your grace. And it says in Romans that, you know, in the book of Romans chapter 1, that there are some who become so obstinate, so, you know, intolerant of God, that God ultimately does give them over to their own way. And so there's a little bit of testing of that here, even now, at the nation of Israel, as they are resisting the Lord, and the Lord challenges them, say, look, why don't you go and cry out to them, I'm done delivering you. But the people, this, this, this creates an even greater crying out from the people. And it kind of really breaks them even further. And it says not only were they crying out, but it says they also then put away the foreign gods. They, they, they said, look, we really want to be serious about this. We're going to put away these things. And they began to serve the Lord. They just came back to the Lord and began to serve Him and worship Him the way they knew. And they put away the false gods. And in that setting... It says that the Lord's soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. You've been a, if you're a parent, you understand how the Lord must have felt, you know, when you see your own kids going through things that are the result of their own choices and the hardships that come upon their life. You as a parent, it's almost harder on you than sometimes it is upon the child. You love the child. You, love, you hate to see the choices that are sometimes made and the consequences and you, your heart breaks for the misery that sin brings. And this is the way the Lord is now feeling over the heart of this nation. His heart is breaking for them. He, he's, he's allowing their enemies uh, to come upon them because they've rejected Him. And yet, He hates to see the distress that comes upon them. He lets them experience it, but we also see that there is something of a deeper repentance that takes place in the heart. We have sinned and they put away the foreign gods. And I think that's the true mark of repentance. It's not just confession, but it's also forsaking. A confessing of the sin and then a forsaking of the sin. Uh, oftentimes we want to confess and, forg- and, and have that forgiveness, but it's the forsaking of the sin. It's the, it's the turning away from that, that. That's part of repentance as well. Now that doesn't mean that we don't continue to struggle, that we don't continue to stumble at times and, and fall back and have to have the Lord restore us again. But, but there's a difference between that stumbling when you don't want to live in that bondage and the, and, and the game playing of, oh God, forgive me, but are your heart still planning to live in a complete rebellious state? And God sees through that kind of a heart, and God is looking for true repentance. He who confesses, God is faithful and just to forgive. But including in confession, there is a change of heart. Lord, help deliver me. Isn't that what the Lord taught in the Lord's Prayer? Lord, deliver us from evil. Lead me not into temptation. I want to live right. And that heart, and that doesn't mean you'll be able to perfectly in all cases, but it means that that's the desire of your heart. You're truly sorry for your sin, and God is anxious to forgive and cleanse those who are sincere of heart. I'll read this psalm to you. I didn't have time to get this for you up on the overhead. I actually had something else planned for us tonight um, because of something in our text, and I'll comment on it, and then we'll look at what I had planned later. But let me just read this psalm to you, Psalm 78. When he slew them, then they sought him, and they returned and sought earnestly for God. Then they remembered that God was their rock and the Most High God their Redeemer. Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth, and they lied to him with their tongue. For their heart was not steadfast with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity. And did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. It broke the Lord's heart to see his children in misery. The psalmist comments that, you know, even though the Lord knew that their heart was often not steadfast, he still loved them. He was still merciful and compassion. He turned his anger away. He remembered that they were but flesh. 
That tells us something of the heart of God. The Lord is not wanting to judge. The Lord is actually wanting to show mercy. God wants to forgive. God wants to cleanse. Evidenced most dramatically in the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ came to die on the cross. As, how, how else could God say, I love you and want to forgive you? I can't pretend you haven't sinned. I can't, as a righteous and holy God, just let you live in complete rebellion and in sin and, and against my, my, you know, my heart and your conscience, that which would leave you to destruction. But I, I want you to know that I'm, my heart is to forgive you. And the greatest expression of that is giving His own Son to die on the cross for our sins, so that if we would put our faith and trust in Jesus, we could have our sins forgiven. This is clearly the heart of God, even as he's dealing with this rebellious people of Israel. Well, let's read on in the story here. Pick it up with me in verse 17. So the Lord begins to now move on their behalf again. Then the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilead. And the children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So they've prayed, they've put away their idols, they've now gathered to stand against the enemy, and the Lord is now with them, but they're looking for a leader who will fight for us. They, in the past, God had raised up a leader, and so now the question is, Who is going to come and help us? And that kind of sets the context for chapter 11. Now we're going to be introduced to the next judge. His name is Jephthah. Pick it up now, chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead begot Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, They drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So, he's kind of the the stepson. He's been born out of wedlock. His father's brought him up in the home, but now the brothers of the wife are are saying, You're done. We want you out of here. Verse 3. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob. And worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. So Jephthah, he is this kind of a, again, something of a half-breed. He's been born by a, by a harlot, but um, now he's rejected by the people of Gilead. So he leaves, and, but it says that he was a mighty man of valor. So he must have already demonstrated certain bravery, a certain ability to defend, a certain courage that was known about him. He had something of a reputation, but his brothers you know, said, get out, we don't want you, so he leaves, and he ends up with a bunch of guys, and together they go out raiding. I don't know exactly what that looked like, but, you know, um, it looks like you know, he just kind of, kind of took up with some uh, rough characters and uh, went out and started raiding. I don't know what that was. Maybe like little pirates, you know, just going out and doing things. Maybe it was like a Harley gang or something that was kind of just out, kind of rough. No offense to you guys that love Harleys, but, you know, it's just a certain image that, that, that Jephthah seems to have. The Bible says, look, these guys were, were a little rough around the edges, and he was kind of out raiding, but, uh, but there was something about him that was of valor. And But his notorious character now, they're going to remember him. Take a look in verse 4. It came to pass, after a time, that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And so it was, when the people of Ammon made war against Israel, that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Then they said to Jephthah, Come out, or excuse me, come and be our commander that we may fight against the people of Ammon. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, This is why we have turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon, and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon, 
and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. So now they want Jephthah. Now they need that rough character. Where is he? He's just the right kind of guy to lead us out against our enemies. Now again, he had something of a notorious reputation, but he's also clearly a man who has faith in God. And he says, even now, if the Lord gives me victory, he knew that victory would not come from his strength or his ability, but he knew that it would take the Lord's hand to bring victory. If I come back, and if indeed the Lord gives me this victory, will you truly allow me to be a leader back in in Gilead? And they said, we will. As the Lord lives, he'll be our witness, we will. So he returns and he says all of these things before the Lord in Mizpah. So he confirms this covenant, but it's a covenant made in faith towards God. Interesting that in Hebrews chapter 11, the, the hall of fame for all those of, that are mentioned concerning faith, Jephthah is mentioned as one of those heroes of faith. So he is something of a, you know, like I said, a little bit of a, a rough around the edges kind of a character, but you know what? And he comes from, you know, kind of a questionable past, but he had faith in God. And this shows us, you know, faith in God is what what the Lord is looking for, a relationship, a true, sincere faith in Him, being available, not necessarily being, you know, having all the right pedigree, but do you trust God? If you do, God can use you, and God can take even, even rough characters and use them by His grace and bring them into that, which, that kind of leadership that He wants them to be. The Lord is able to use even those that appear to be unlikely. Uh, Jesus himself, it says throughout the scriptures, that he was the stone which the builders rejected. But he himself became the chief cornerstone. You remember Jesus was rejected by the religious elite of his time. They didn't think that he was worthy. We're, we're, we're sons of Abraham. Who are you? Insinuating that Jesus' birth was questionable. Who's your father? Remember there was the, the miraculous birth around Jesus' uh, birth. And that, no doubt, that reputation probably followed him. Uh, and so Jesus was rejected by men. But he, in fact, became the very, very deliverer for us all. And I would just encourage your heart tonight to consider Jesus. I don't um, know you're here tonight. Most of you are here because you're already believers and you're here to study the Bible. But I also know that some come and you're in a place where you're hurting. You're come. You're 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 kind of you're not sure what's going on in your life. You're not sure about your relationship with the Lord. And we're living kind of in a culture that really rejects Christ. Christ is not considered as any kind of an answer. In fact, Jesus is considered to be something of a handicap. You know, almost like a crutch or or a narrow-minded, you know, silly thing that you would put your trust and faith in in Jesus. And, um, you know, God, God has put salvation through no other name but the name of Jesus. There's no other name under heaven or on earth by which men can be saved. You may be here tonight and just kind of wondering, what am I going to do with my life? What's going on? I want, you, I want to tell you, consider Jesus. Don't, don't listen to what the world has said about Jesus. Don't listen to whatever doubts you, you might have. Recognize that He is, in fact, the one that God has called to save and has appointed to save. Maybe you're a believer. Maybe you're going through something, and, and it's easy sometimes to forget about Jesus. Prayer is the last resort. I'm trying to do everything else I can, but maybe we need to just come back and remember, Jesus is your deliverer. Jesus is your help. He's your Savior. And he's, uh, there's the grace of God, as we learned on Sunday, is sufficient for you. Um, this this Jephthah, he's he's the most lethal, least likely guy, kind of like uh, you know Gideon. He didn't seem like much of a mighty man of of valor either. But but the Lord sometimes uses those 
those men that, are, that we least expect. And certainly Jesus, born in a manger of humble birth, growing up just as a young man in his father's carpentry business. The last, really, that's, what, that's why the religious leaders just had such a hard time. Who is this guy from Nazareth? Really? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Because God is not doing things in the way that men value and, and discern things. God is working in the spirit. God is working in the heart. Consider Jesus tonight, whether you know him, whether you need to come to know him. He has the help and victory that you need. And it may be that you need to give the leadership of your life back to him and allow him to deliver you. But let's read on. Jephthah has now come. He's been a, a kind of uh, anointed as the leader. And pick it up in verse 12, and we'll see him go to work. And first he begins something of a diplomatic effort to try and settle this dispute. Verse 12, Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, saying, What do you have against me that you have come to fight against me in my land? And the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came out of Egypt, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok, and to the Jordan. Now therefore restore those lands peaceably. So Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of of the people of Ammon, and he said to him, so I'll read that in just a moment. So he wants to try and settle this without a conflict. So he sends it out to the leaders. Hey, why are you guys here attacking us? Why do you want to fight? And so the response is, because you stole our land. You stole our land when you came out of Egypt. Now, it struck me as I was studying this tonight, how similar the claim is today of the conflict that's going on in Israel. We have those who were never indigenous to the land, Claiming that Israel, who has been for thousands of years in the land, you stole our land. You stole our land. You're the occupiers. We want all of our land back. And it's a complete falsehood. And actually, I saw just recently um, a video, and I'm going to share it with you guys. Uh, I was going to share it tonight. It is just so well done. A documentary talking about... You know, just the the biblical, historical, legal basis that Israel has to that land. And this whole idea of two-state solution and dividing the land, this is not God's plan, it's not God's desire for that nation. And so much of the conflict is raging now, and it's getting worse, and it's so relevant to us today. And there's so much going on, this whole movement, this whole jihad movement. And I'm telling you, in time, you'll see, watch it, it it will all come circle back to Israel. They're they're grabbing land in other areas, you know, in Iraq now. If you're watching the news, there's quite a bit going on. uh, Killing and slaughtering people as they go. In Syria, the same kind of battle. Very ruthless, beheading Christians when they find them. It's a dark time. But I guarantee you, in in time, what you will see as these clouds gather, it will all come back to Israel. And that's because that's, it's Satan, it's, it's inspired by Satan. And ultimately, he wants to destroy God's people, and he wants to destroy God's people in their land. And God's people, the Israel, and of course, God's people, the church. But um, don't fall for the, the narrative that is being kind of put out there, that somehow Israel are are the big bad bullies occupying the land, and it's the poor, you know, Palestinians and and Arab people that are just, you know, being, you know, oppressed by this, uh, you know, bully Israel. Now, I, I have nothing against the, you know, the Palestinian struggle and the people, but that's not what's going on. Just so you know, that's not what's going on. Israel is not the bully. Israel is the rightful nation to the land. And ordained by God and miraculously accomplished by God after, the, after he dispersed them in 70 AD, after the Romans conquered them. He is now in these last days brought them back. And he has plans for them in that land. And he has plans for the world as the conflict begins to center around that land. And we're seeing it even in, even in churches now. I was um, visiting in um, 
this is some years back, visiting in, in Ireland and happened to be visiting in a Presbyterian church. And this Presbyterian pastor got up and, and shared about the Palestinian um, suffrage and how big bad Israel was, was just coming in and, and, and you know, uh, of course they were coming in, advancing across into, the, into Gaza to put down insurrection, to put down terrorism and things like this. And how he, his heart was just, you know, that's so wrong, they shouldn't be doing that, they're so ruthless. Israel was the big bad bully. And I thought, you know, here's this guy. He's a, he's a minister of God's word. He's a pastor. He's a shepherd of God's people of the church. And he's been duped by this, this narrative that, that, the, that the enemy has sold the world. And, uh, and, and he is selling it. And now it's even crept into the church. And I, and I, so I did just a little reading on the Presbyterian church. They've completely distanced themselves from Israel. They won't even support any corporations. They boycott corporations that have anything to do with Israel. And this is the church. They have now decided that Israel is kind of the bad, uh, oppressive um, occupier of the land. And that they are really uh, not entitled to that land. And we're seeing it even in our own nation. We've been, as the United States, has been a long supporter of Israel. But now, even in recent years, we're starting to see some of our national support, some of our leadership. You know, wanting to divide the land, wanting Israel to give up more land. Go back to 1967 borders, which leaves them with a little nine-mile strip along the coast. Completely indefensible, just perfect, set up for a complete, you know, destruction. And, and this is, I believe it's spiritual. And I believe that, uh, you know, we as the church, you know, I think that we, we need to remember what the Bible has to say about the land and about the people. And um, it just struck me how this lie, this king of Ammon, he says, you took our land. Now, Jephthah, he's going to respond to that to him. And he's going to give him the, the real historical account of what happened. And, uh, but it just struck me, this is exactly where we have this, this narrative that's being, sold, that being kind of sold out to the world today. Israel are the occupiers of the Arab people's land. When in fact... According to the Bible and according to thousands of years of history, it's been the Jewish people's homeland ever since God gave it to them when Joshua crossed the Jordan River. And it's never been disputed, except now it, that, that they're back in the land. So definitely something spiritual, but I, I think you can see some, some of that lie that has been kind of part of how the enemy looks to destroy God's people even back in the book of Judges. So, pick it up with me in verse 14. So Jephthah, um, excuse me, we're, we're now in verse 15. And, he, and this, is, this is what Jephthah's messenger said to the king of Ammon. Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Then Israel went sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let me pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh. And they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab, came to the east side of the land of Moab, and encamped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the border of Moab, Moab, excuse me, for the, for the Arnon uh, was the border of Moab. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land into our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together, encamped in Jahaz, and fought against Israel. Verse 21, And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. Thus Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. They took possession of all the territory of the Ammonites from the Arnon to, to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. And now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then, dis, should you then possess it? Will you not possess whatever Chemosh your God gives you to possess? 
So whatever the Lord our God takes possession of before us, we will possess. And now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages and Aroer and its villages and all the cities along the banks of the Arnon for 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? Therefore I have not sinned against you, but you wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. So, kind of a long history lesson that Jephthah gives this king. Hell, you took the land when you came up from Egypt. That's not what happened. That's not what happened at all. In fact, here's how we got to this land. We, we bypassed several of your neighbors. When we asked permission if we could pass through, they denied it, so we went around. And we finally got to this land. We asked if we could pass through. It was denied, not only denied, but they rose up to fight us. And the Lord gave us victory over these people and then gave us that land. This land was won by conquest. Not us coming to attack, but us defending the attack that was made against us. And then God said, this is now yours as spoils and punishment for their unjust attack upon you. That's how we came to this particular part of Gilead, that eastern side of the Jordan River. So what you have said is false. And your claim to this land is false. And now you're here just wanting to further your kingdom at, on, you know, at our expense. Let's let the Lord decide. So Jephthah gives this great history lesson to the king of Ammon. Not that he's interested. But it tells us something a little bit about Jephthah. You know, this uh, rough character, he knew his word. He knew the Bible. He he knew the history of his people. He knew how God had worked with this nation. This is why he had faith, because he knew how God had intervened. He knew the complete historical setting of his people and how they had arrived there. This guy's got more this guy has a better working knowledge of the word than most of the you know the, the leaders of Israel. We, where where are the uh, you know where are the Levites who are supposed to know and be teaching the word of God? Where are the spiritual leaders? This guy who's kind of a again kind of a rough character, he knows what he's talking about. And um, you know it's important to know the word. It's important to be a student of the Word. It's important to know what God has promised. It's important to know what God has accomplished for you in Christ. Because the enemy is going to come and try and take land away from you. And he's going to lie to you. That's, you're not entitled to that. That's mine. You're not, you shouldn't have that kind of victory. You shouldn't have that kind of peace. That's not going to work out for you. And if, you're not, if you don't know what God has promised, if you don't know what God has said and what God has established, you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable to surrender territory to the enemy i'm talking about your personal life i'm talking about your family i'm talking about those things that god has said are yours and i've given them to you and you'll show you will be blessed if you will serve me in that place and honor me in that relationship if you will walk with me and the enemy comes and says that won't work you don't need you know that's not going to work out you better do this in your own hand you better do this in your own you better follow me you better do it your way you better do it my way And all of these deceptions that would come in to try and steal away from you what God has given to you and what God has promised. You need to know your word. We need to trust him. We need to stand on the promises of God. Even in the midst of battle, even in the midst of trial, God's word is true. He's faithful. And I like what Jephthah says, let God decide today. We're going to stand here. We'll fight you if we have to. We shouldn't have to, but we're going to to stand our ground and we'll let God Do the defending. We pick it up now in verse 28. However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent him. No surprise. Verse 29, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mitzvah of Gilead, and from Mitzvah of Gilead he advanced toward the people of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it as a burnt offering. 
That's going to come back to haunt him, that little promise, that little deal that he makes while he's out on the battlefield. Pick it up, verse 32. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he defeated them from Aurora as far as Minneth, twenty cities, and to Abel, Karimim, with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. So he goes out and he has great victory. It says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And this is God's Spirit coming upon him, enabling him for the ministry work that he's been called to do, to bring victory for God's people. You know, the Spirit of the Lord coming upon a man, it does not necessarily mean that this man was perfect and holy and in every way righteous before the Lord. The Lord could, could scarcely come upon any of us if that were a requirement. But the Lord does equip and enable even jars of clay, if you will, even broken vessels, even incomplete, imperfect men and women. He will come upon you in that moment, in that time, to enable you to be that light and witness that He's called you to be. I believe that's part of what Jesus promised His disciples. Wait at Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you, in which time you will receive power to be witnesses for me. And the Holy Spirit come, came upon that early church, and those guys, those were the disciples, the same guys that had denied him and fled just, you know, weeks before. Same, the same imperfect, stumbling, bumbling kind of guys, just like you and I. But when the Spirit of God came upon them, they were, they were endued with this power, this boldness, and the Holy Spirit used them in dramatic ways to preach the gospel, to witness for Christ. And miraculous things happened. Signs and wonders followed them, but it was the witness of the word that went out and the church was birthed and the church began. You know, you can't do it without the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit of the Lord to come upon us again. We need the Spirit of the Lord to be upon us, to equip us for those things that He has entrusted us to do. It's not by power. It's not by might. But it's by my Spirit, says the Lord. Jephthah enjoys this victory as the Spirit of God comes upon him. But Jephthah had made a promise on, his, on the road while he was in battle. Pick it up now in verse 34, and we're going to see how that plays out. When Jephthah came to his house at Mitzpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. And so she said to him, My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. Then she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months, that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. So he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months, and she went to her with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was so at the end of the two months that she returned to her father, and he carried her out and excuse me, and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. So he makes this vow while he is out in the battlefield. Lord, if you'll, if you'll give me the victory, if you'll give these people of Ammon into my hand, when I get back, when I come back from the victory, Whatever comes out of my tent, first thing that comes out of my tent, I'm going to offer it to the Lord as a burnt offering. So he makes this vow. No doubt in his mind, he's thinking, you know, whatever animal kind of walks out, that'll be something he'll sacrifice to the Lord. Not thinking that it would be his daughter that would be the first one that would come out of the tent. But his daughter comes out, and it becomes something of a grief to his heart that he now has made this vow to the Lord, and he needs to keep it. Vows. Vows unmade unto the Lord. It's important to remember that they are not required. They are voluntary. God is not asking us to make promises. 
In fact, Jesus would say, look, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just keep your word. Just be a man or woman of your word. But sometimes, you know, we want to make a promise. We want to make a vow. We want to really commit ourselves. And God will accept, God will allow that, and He certainly did in the Old Testament, that they, they, could for a, they could make a vow to the Lord. It would be an expression of worship, an expression of a heartfelt commitment. But it was not something that God required, but rather it was something that He would allow. But once it was made, then the Lord desired that you keep the vow. If you give your heart and give your word at that kind of, with that kind of commitment and promise, then the Lord wants you to keep your promise. The Lord wants us to be people of our word. And so this put Jephthah in a very awkward place. Truthfully, this was something of an unwise vow. This is not a vow that Jephthah needed to make, and it's not a vow that he should have made, because he didn't quite think it through what would happen if something other than what he expected came out of his tent. He just It was kind of made in haste. and um, But... It does speak something of his character that even though he made that vow in haste and he realized that it was a mistake, he still knew that he had made a vow to the Lord and his heart was to keep it. So, it's not bad that he made a vow, but the type of vow that he made was not wise. It's good to seek the Lord's help. It's good to commit an offering of thanks and and to want to bless the Lord and to celebrate with the Lord the victory that He brings. But it's not good to make a deal with the Lord. If, if, then I. You know, don't negotiate with God. Rather, trust God and then promise God that you you will worship Him in those ways that are appropriate. So he kind of made this vow a little bit in the blind and it didn't turn out as well as he'd hoped. I want to offer some insight into what happened. So, many scholars believe that he made a vow that whatever came out of the tent, he would offer to the Lord, and he would offer it as a burnt offering. So, some scholars believe that Jephthah actually sacrificed his daughter, killed her, and gave her as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, the scripture does not tell us that specifically, And uh, there are many scholars who doubt that that actually happened. I'm one of those, I'm not a scholar, but I'm one of those that doubted, (laughs) doubt that that actually happened. It's possible. Remember, this was a very dark time in Israel. They had already embraced many of the pagan cultural kind of worship things. and And it could be that, you know, that that was... What we know that child sacrifice was a part of the pagan worship of that time, and it may be that you know Jephthah kept that, thinking he was keeping and honoring something unto the Lord. But I'll offer a couple of other ideas to help help uh, give it an alternative solution to this passage. You'll notice in verse 31, it says, uh, "Whatever comes out when he made the vow itself." Let me go back there. It will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Okay, do you see the word and? And I will offer it up as a burnt offering. That Hebrew word can also be translated or. So it could read like this. Um, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, or I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So there is a possible interpretation there that, that his vow was, whatever comes out, I will offer to the Lord, or I will offer it as a burnt offering to the Lord. Because... Think about it, Jephthah would have had some animals possibly on his property that were not even kosher, not even acceptable to be offered to the Lord as a burnt offering. And so it it may have been that he was simply trying to say, whatever it is, I'm going to dedicate this, whether it's a person, they'll be dedicated to the Lord. If If it's an animal that can be sacrificed, I'll sacrifice it to the Lord. It's possible that that's, that was within the vow that he made. Um... That's one possible interpretation. Um, The other thing is that the scripture does not really tell us that he killed his daughter and uh, and offered her up as a burnt offering. It could be that he simply dedicated her to the Lord, meaning that she would not be married, that she would not have opportunity to bear children, 
but that she would be dedicated to the service of the Lord. And now this too would be something of a sad occasion because the scripture tells us this was his only child. He didn't have any sons to carry on his lineage and this was his only daughter to carry on his posterity as well. And now he's dedicated her to the Lord. And so I, I tend to favor this interpretation uh, because again, Jephthah is, is mentioned in Hebrews 11 as a, one of the great men of faith. And we know that the Lord uh, would never have asked him or even allowed him, quite possibly, to offer his daughter and still him be this man of God serving the Lord. And he would go on to judge the nation. So I think more likely uh, it, it was, in fact, that she was dedicated to the Lord. She went away to grieve knowing that she would not have opportunity, that she would remain unmarried and childless. And it says there in verse 38, and this is my hint, He carried out his vow with her, which he vowed, she knew no man. That's the immediate following word. He carried out his vow, not, uh, it doesn't say she was killed and offered as a burnt offering, but rather, she knew no man. So the scripture does not give that detail that she was killed, but rather that she knew no man It's a little vague, and like I said, there are some scholars on both sides of this. Uh, I present it to you, at least from my bias, that I I believe that she simply remained a virgin, and that was sad for her, but it also allowed her her father to keep the vow, and and that's why she was willing uh, and said, Father, keep keep the vow that you've made. Let me go and, and mourn, because there is a loss for me in this, but... You know, let's, let's keep this, this vow that you've made to the Lord. So, sad for her and for her father, but the Lord um, gives this wonderful victory through this man, Jephthah. All right, then we'll pick up um, next week um, as we continue our study through the book of Judges. Let's pray now. So, Lord, we thank you for... The continued teaching of your word in our hearts as we walk through the book of Judges. Lord, we, we do see so much of our own nature, our own heart revealed as we read these chapters, Lord. We see men that are, that are jealous. We see men that are... In one minute they want to get rid of Jephthah, and the next minute they want him to come rescue them, Lord. Just so typical. And Lord, we just, again, we just see so much of our own human condition in these passages. Lord, if we're honest here tonight, we would have to acknowledge that, Lord, there have been seasons in our life where we've walked close with you and had rest. But there's also been times, Lord, that we've maybe gotten comfortable and and fallen away and gotten ourselves back into the things of the world surrounding us. And Lord, then, then come the consequences and, and then we realize, oh God, I need you. And, and back we come, Lord. And, and I know that sometimes I've been in our own lives, Lord, there can be that cycle. But I do believe, just as you were merciful and gracious with your people, Israel, Lord, you are merciful and gracious to us as well. It's not your desire that we fall away and suffer those consequences, Lord, but it is, it is your desire that we return to you and that we return to you in earnest, not just confessing, but really also forsaking. And I also believe that, Lord, in time, if we will but continue to come back to you, no matter how many times we need to, if we will but just continue to return, that in time your grace and your love And the ministry of your Holy Spirit and the anointing of your word will in time, to the sincere heart, you will deliver us. And you will bring us into places of victory and rest. Lord, there will always be something else that your spirit touches in our heart, the next project, the next area of our life that needs to be surrendered. And then we start some of that process again. But Lord, over time... What I've seen in my own life and I've seen in so many others as well is that there is a change, there is a growing, there is a maturing, there is a victory. And Lord, that's our hope. 
We can't do it without you. We can't do it in our own strength. It's not by making promises or vows or anything that we can conjure up in our own willpower, Lord. But it's coming to you in honesty and sincerity and saying, Lord, here I am again. Please have mercy on me. Cleanse me and help me and strengthen me. God, give me victory in these areas. So, Lord, I do pray for those hearts that are here tonight that may be struggling, maybe somewhere in that cycle. Lord, that they would come back to you, that they would come quickly. Lord, the children of Israel, they waited 18 years. Lord, I don't want to wait 18 seconds. I need to be right with you. Lord, I pray for every heart here tonight that may need to return to you, Lord. But also for encouragement tonight, Lord, that, that you will bring us into victory. You do love us. And Lord, we live, in a, we live in a new covenant and a new promise wherein the Holy Spirit... Lord, the Spirit came upon Jephthah. But in the, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes upon all believers. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon all flesh, all that come to faith in Christ. So pour out your Spirit on us afresh and anew tonight, God. And as our heads are bowed here and... Uh, Just closing up tonight in prayer, I do want to give opportunity for anyone that may need to respond to the Lord and respond to His Word. It may be that you're here tonight and you do not know the Lord. You don't know Him in this personal way. You've never received Jesus. As I prayed earlier, you know, to consider Jesus, it may be that the one person that you thought would be the least likely candidate to help you is the very one you need tonight. You need Jesus. You need what He's done for you at the cross. And you realize it tonight. It's Him. It's always been Him. And and you need to come and just ask Him to forgive you and ask Jesus to come into your heart. And He loves you. He's waiting and He's knocking and He will. Maybe you need to come back to Jesus. You've invited Him into your life. You've known Him. You've walked with Him. You may have even enjoyed some of the wonderful blessings of life in Christ. But tonight, maybe you've cycled away. Maybe something that enticed you away. Maybe some hardship. Maybe something of just your own sin, your own nature. But tonight you find yourself far from the Lord. And you're wondering, will Jesus even take me back? And can He really still help me this situation I'm in or this circumstance that I'm facing? I'm so undeserving. How could He possibly... That's why I read that psalm. The Lord, the Lord is mindful that we are just flesh. And his, his heart is to be merciful tonight. Consider Jesus again, afresh, anew. There is no other answer. There's no other hope. It's Jesus and Him alone. So I'd love to pray for you tonight if you need Jesus into your life to come into your life for the first time or you need to come back and rededicate your life to Him. If you're here tonight and you need that prayer, I would ask you simply to raise your hand. Let me see you tonight. I'm going to pray for you. Bless you, sir, in the back there. Any others? The Lord speaking to you tonight. Amen. You, sir, as well. He loves you. He's the help that you need. Anyone else tonight? Do you need Jesus? You need to come back to Jesus. Just before I pray, anyone else? So, Lord, for these two that have responded to your word tonight, I pray that you would meet them with that love and grace that would bring to them a confidence, an assurance, and a peace. That as they come honestly before you and say, Jesus, please forgive me. Please wash me tonight because I've sinned against you. I've fallen away. I've missed the mark. But I, I want to I wanna get my heart and, right life, and life right with you tonight. And Lord, don't, not only cleanse me from my sin, but Lord... Move into my heart as the Lord of my life, and by your Spirit, give me victory to walk with you. Because you've died on that cross for me, that's my hope, that's my confidence, not anything that I deserve, but your love and your grace. Lord, meet them tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me tonight? Long text tonight, these chapters and judges. Thank you for your patience. I try to read through them as quickly as we can, but uh, there's good insights there for us. I pray the Lord will bless you and there's grace will be with you. Let's close in a song of worship and then we'll dismiss. Lord, we need you tonight. So, uh, you know, we, we have this new coffee machine out in the fellowship hall. So I thought, you know, it's my 31st anniversary. I think lattes for a dollar. That's our special for tonight. God bless you. Lord, bless your people tonight. May we go out with blessing and your grace upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.